We're going to go right into the teaching. We talked last week that it's appropriate, it's prudent to speak to what people might be thinking of, that if you're in the Christmas season, it makes sense to talk about things Christmassy. Uh, someone mentioned, they remarked on last Sunday's Christmassy message that it was Christmas scorched or it was Christmas burned. If you were here last week, you probably know what they're talking about. It was Christmas theme. We looked at uh, Isaac and the promise of Isaac in Genesis 18 and God's visit to Abraham and Sarah sort of on one hand and how point by point we saw the connections between Isaac's birth and his announcement with Jesus' birth narrative in Luke's Gospel. Very intentional. And we're going to stay in that same series on the road looking at Jesus in the Old Testament this morning. When I was looking at my teaching schedule in October, trying to figure out where this series would land us for the Christmas season, should I can it and go to something entirely Christmas related, when I saw that we would do Isaac's announcement last week and I and Isaac's appearing this week, I just felt in God's providence I should continue on because Isaac is, of all people in the Old Testament, he is the most clear declaration of the person of Jesus. So we're going to look at Isaac, a couple elements of his life in which we are very, very clearly by God meant to see Jesus in the life, and specifically this morning in the offering of Isaac. Now this, this does touch on the Christmas theme, but let me say again, just as this song we opened with this morning, this is a Christmas song, right? We Three Kings. Christmassy as it gets. But did you notice that whoever wrote that, the whole gospel is in there? Jesus' arrival and the king's visiting, but then his death and the myrrh and resurrection, it's all there because if you're talking about Jesus in the incarnation, you're talking about the gospel. Jesus came to save, and that means we have to be saved from something. And you'll see in spades that in the life of Isaac, it's the offering of Isaac on Mount Moriah that like his death is even more clearly a foreshadowing by God of Jesus that would come a couple thousand years later. We're going to, I'm going to ramble a little bit this morning. I'll try not to ramble badly, but I want to make a couple points of application as we go through this. So uh, we're going to land in Genesis 22 in just a little bit. But by way of review, if you didn't happen to be here last week, when we compared Genesis 18 the announcement of Isaac's birth and compared that to Luke's gospel and the announcement of Jesus' birth and then the birth of both of those young boys, we notice striking similarities. Uh, both of these sons were promised by God long before their arrival. For uh, Isaac, uh, the promise by God in Genesis 12, 1 through 3 of a seed actually included Isaac. And then Genesis 17, more than a year before his arrival, God had said he's going to come. We said with Jesus, you go all the way back to Genesis 3.15, God had said, I'm going to send a special one. And that was 4,000 years plus ago. But both of these special children, sons of promise, had been declared by God long before their arrival on the scene. Both were the result of physically impossible conceptions. Do you remember that? Sarah was physically incapable of conceiving at this stage in her life. If God hadn't intervened, miraculously Isaac could never have been born but that's part of the picture because when you get to Mary you know we call this the type and the anti-type the foreshadowing the substance or the reality when you get to Mary again you've got a woman who physically is incapable of having a child because she's a virgin and God says that's not a problem for me 
In both cases, a woman who can't conceive does. Jesus and Isaac. You have angels attending the announcement of both births. You remember in Genesis 18, the angels with Yahweh and the angel Gabriel, of course, shows up when Jesus is announced to Mary. Uh, both of them brought joy in their arrival. You know, laughter. Isaac, the name means laughter. Isaac arrives on the scene with Abraham and Sarah and they are happy and there's joy. And that's also true when Jesus shows up on the scene. He brings joy, peace on earth, goodwill to men. There's joy in Jesus' arrival as well. We also sort of talked against the cheery Christmas theme last week that also both brought division. We didn't specifically cover this in relation to Isaac, but you remember when Isaac came on the scene, Ishmael had to leave. There was a point of division relationally when Isaac came. And we said too, when you looked at Simeon in the temple, Simeon said of Jesus, some are going to rise and some are going to fall over this one. He'll be a point of division. He'll also galvanize opposition to God. He'll be a sign, Simeon said, to be opposed. So when they came, they brought joy in one hand, but also they were the point of division also. Both of them were named by God and not their parents. And this is significant because basically God was saying, those boys are uniquely mine. I name them because their name reflects my mission for their life. So their role in history, God says, was too big and too important for their parents to name them. They're uniquely mine, and so I directly name them. There's other points. Hopefully you've got your, uh, your uh, teaching insert from last week. Let me, uh, let me rehearse, too, one of the elements that came up with Isaac's birth last week, and it was this. When God said to Abraham in Genesis 17, you're going to have a son, and it's going to be through Sarah, do you remember how the father of faith responded? In fact, it says he bows to the earth and he laughs because he can't believe it at this point. Though Abraham is the example of faith in the Old Testament, you see throughout the New Testament, he's the father of faith. When God said Sarah will be the one that has the son, he laughs because he doesn't believe it at this point. And he says, God, would you bless Ishmael instead? This is the laughter of unbelief. Now, of course, one chapter later, Genesis 18, when you get to Sarah, Sarah hears the promise. What does she do? The language is the same. She does exactly the same thing. She laughs. And she says in her heart, will a woman my age actually have pleasure, have the pleasure of conceiving and bearing a son? She can't believe it either. And this is the thing. Sometimes God makes promises or statements that to you and I sound too good to be true. You're like, that sounds good, but that won't apply to me. Uh, that, that's nice and probably that promises for someone else because it's too good to be true in my life. And this is the thing I love. Abraham and Sarah, pillars of the faith, right? The Sort of the origin, the father of faith. And they didn't get it. And their laughter, it's the laughter of unbelief. But you know what? That didn't stop God from doing what he said he would do. So that eventually in Genesis 21, 6, Sarah says, God has made me laugh. Everyone who hears this will laugh with me. God gave the gift anyway. He kept His promise. Their unbelief didn't stop it. And their laughter of unbelief or incredulity, it's changed to the real McCoy, to real overflowing mirth and joy and laughter because God kept His Word. And sometimes in your life and mine, there are promises that God makes to us as believers. And at times they do sound just like this, too good to be true. 
And we may say to ourselves, Lord, I think you'd do that for someone else, but you probably wouldn't do that for me. Or Lord, you know that, yeah, that sounds good, but I, I find myself in the same hole of discouragement or depression, or I find myself rolling in the same sin I've been in before. You know, I look at my life and I say, that sounds good for someone else, but I just don't see how that applies to me. And you know what? The truth is, the promises God makes to us as His children, as believers in Christ, they're good. And many of them, in fact, the most important ones, do not depend on how faithfully we follow through in obedience, in following, any more than Abraham and Sarah, not initially believing this promise, kept God from giving Isaac. It doesn't matter. The biggest promises don't matter. Let me just roll through a few of these that, for me, are startling. And if you're a Christian, these things are true of you right now. And it's independent of anything you do, any faithfulness you achieve in your life. These things are true of you, period. So in Romans 6, 7, and 8, these are really key theological chapters in the Bible for Christians. When you say, I'm saved, I've trusted Jesus, what's next? What does life look like? What's my guiding star? Well, Paul says there's all kinds of things that are true of you now that weren't the moment before you were saved. Because now you're in Christ and Christ is in you. And your origin and your destiny are both infinitely changed. So when you read Romans 6, it says of Christians that not only did Jesus die for you, that's atonement. And that's what Christians talk about more than anything else if we're talking about the gospel, isn't it? Jesus died for our sins. That's important. Paul says in Romans 6, there's a flip side to that. And it's that you died with Jesus. Jesus died for your sins, but you died with Jesus. Now, we talked about this a long time ago when we looked at Jesus in the seed of the woman. Um, when you trust Christ, you gain a new spiritual point of origin. The first Adam is no longer the, the origin that guides your destiny. You know, we said origin is everything. Where do I come from? What am I given? What are my resources? What's my identity? When you trust Christ, Christ becomes your new point of origin. You have a new spiritual life that you didn't have before. And it starts by saying, not only did Jesus die for your sins, but you died with Christ in his death on the cross. Your old sinful self, born from Adam, died with Christ on the cross. And it was buried with Christ in the tomb. So that as Jesus rose from the dead, Paul says in Romans 8, he has new resurrection life. His new resurrection life is your life. The reason Christians don't have to be frustrated by defeat in sin, which is Romans 7 in the middle there, is because our old sinful nature was dealt with by Christ at the cross. Now we sin. We'd be kidding ourselves if we didn't say that, right? Fess up, we sin. But the truth is, we don't have to sin because our sinful nature has been dispossessed in our death with Christ on the cross. And we have new resurrection life. And that's what Paul talks about in Romans 8. We have the Spirit, the Spirit has us. And we walk with the Spirit and we don't fulfill the desires of the flesh. That's true of us today. Now, the degree to which we experience that is more or less, depending on the time of day, the time of month, the time of year, whatever. But that's true of you and I every single day, every moment of every day. We don't have to sin. We have freedom over sin because we died with Christ and we rose with Christ. We have a new resurrection life and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. That changes everything. That's true of you 
today. Ephesians 1.3, I was talking with a brother about this one this last week. Ephesians 1.3 says that you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And just think about that for a second. You have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Jesus is exalted in heaven today, and he's our representative in heaven. And where he is, we will one day be. And the glory he has in heaven will be ours. Not the glory of his deity, his divinity. He can't share that with us. That's unique. But everything else is a man in heaven, Jesus in his glory. That's our future. And basically all the blessings God has given Jesus, those same blessings have been given to us. So we have fellowship with the Father. We have fellowship with the Son. And our future is to be like Christ gloriously. Now, this is not uncertain. You know, if you look at uh, Christians, think of Duck Dynasty with some uh, camo gear as I'm looking around the room this morning. Pretty unimpressive, right? We look at ourselves pretty unimpressive, right? But you know, the Scripture says that Christ in us, that's true if you're a Christian, Christ is in you, Christ in us, is our hope of glory. And hope there doesn't mean we hope it happens. It means the certainty of what has not yet occurred. I think John in his first epistle says that when we see him, we'll be like him. Well, guys, this is the thing. We have a glory that's certain, just as certain as Isaac's birth was certain and Jesus' birth was certain. We have a glory, a glorious future, so incomparable to our current state that when Paul tries to talk about it in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, you know what? You just can't get there. You know, he tries to compare it. He said, if I plant a seed in the ground, there's no comparison between the seed and the grain, you know, the stalk that's waving in the wind. You can't compare it. They're so dramatically different. Well, he says for us as Christians, we have a future hope of glory. It's certain it will happen. It doesn't matter what you think about yourself. It doesn't matter what you think about your neighbor who's a Christian. How inglorious we are, they are, at this point. It makes no difference whatsoever. We have God's promise that in Christ, we're going to share his glory and we will be like him. And that's your future. If you're a Christian, you're in Christ, he's in you. That's your future. Uh, Proverbs 10.22, as a young Christian, this was a real help to me. Um... It's the blessing of the Lord that makes rich and he adds no sorrow to it. You know, when I was a new Christian, I thought God might give me something with one hand and take something else away with the other. You know, it's like he might not want to bless me too fully or, you know, I need sorrow with my joy or whatever. And Proverbs says, no, you know, when God gives you something good, it really is good. And there's no downside in it whatsoever. So we have, Peter calls them precious and magnificent promises that are absolutely true, no less true than the promise of Isaac and Jesus, and that's our future. Sometimes it sounds too good to be true, but that is your destiny. That's your future, regardless of what you do, regardless of how fully you lay hold of that today, that's where you're heading. That's where we're heading if we're in Christ, and Christ is us. So the laughter, if you will, or the disappointment, you know, or the frustration of whatever's going on in our life, that's all going to be displaced one day with the awesome reality will be in Christ's presence. His glory will be ours. We will be grandly transformed into his image 
And that's going to happen just as certainly as those two births occurred as well. Let me close this section. I bring this up because at the Christmas season, do you guys find this, that our expectations rise for life in general? We're going to see all these people. It's going to be great. The food is going to be great. Um, Life is great. The presents I'm giving will be great. The presents I get will be great. You know, right, so expectations rise. Reality is usually a little less than expectations or desires. And so we've got to qualify sort of where our heads are at for the season. Whatever goes on in the Christmas season, however grand the days are, however good the fellowship or the food is or isn't, the truth is behind all that, through all that, above all that, to the end of all that, we've got things that are true of us that never change. We've got Christmas gifts, if you will. They're not unwrapped yet. They might be under the tree, but we don't get them yet. But we will. As surely as Isaac and Jesus came, you have gifts we're going to unwrap. It's our glorious future. Psalm 126 says it this way. And this psalm, by the way, Israel's come out of captivity. They've been in exile in Babylon. And they come back into the land where God says, this is where I'm going to bless you. But they'd been there for 70 years. But one of the folks who'd come back from Babylon wrote Psalm 126. He said, when the Lord brought back the captive ones of Zion, we were like those who dream. It seemed too good to be true. It seemed like a dream. And I wondered, somebody pinch me and wake me up. I can't believe this is really happening. No, it's really happening. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, our tongue with joyful shouting. We've got the laughter just like Isaac brings. They said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Because we've got promises about Jesus' second coming, about the rapture of the church about our future glory that we should be laying hold of in times when we might be tempted to be discouraged by what is or is not going on in our life. So the promise of Isaac seen in the promise and the fulfillment of Jesus, just a great reminder that we have promises bigger than our current circumstances and we need to lay hold of those. Um, If you read the story of Isaac, this is moving towards Genesis 22, if you read his story you cannot help but be struck by the comparison with his father Abraham and his son Jacob. Isaac is actually a minor player. And in fact, if you read his story, Isaac comes across as a couch potato compared to Abraham and Jacob. He does very little. You know, in almost every story he's in, he's the passive element in the story. So he gets born. That wasn't on him, right? He brings laughter. That wasn't on him. He's tricked. He's duped. He waits at home for a bride. That's the norm for Isaac. Now, I love Isaac, by the way. Don't get me wrong as I'm saying this. And depending on the commentators you read, it's like, you know, Isaac is this uh, poor something. It's like, I don't feel that way. I'm just saying. If you read the story, you'll see Isaac doesn't shine in activity the way Abraham and Jacob do. He does not. You know... um, The longest story you have of Isaac is Genesis 26. And he doesn't shine there either. Because while on one hand God blesses him and multiplies him when he turns to farming and plants a field, you see him falling into the same sort of egregious character flaws that he got from Father Abraham because he's lying about his wife. He's putting Rebekah out there to the king Abimelech in Gerar. He's doing the same things Abraham did. It's like it's not Isaac at his best. So... If you look at 
two of the three most important ways in which we see Jesus and Isaac. The birth is one, and that's what we looked at last week. But the other is his offering on Mount Moriah, and that's what we'll look at now. So the rest of his life, it's kind of like kind of a mixed bag. Doesn't look like there's much there to, to talk about, but it's in his offering. That's the second of the three key ways in which we see Jesus in Isaac. So if you have a Bible, Genesis 22, verses 1 through 14 So last week, Isaac was promised, and he's been born. And he's a strapping young man when this story occurs, probably 20 to 25 years old. It came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to Abraham, said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, took two of his young men with him and Isaac, his son. He split wood for the burnt offering and rose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there. We will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and He took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, he said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, don't stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be provided. You have a study sheet, and you can go to that. I want to cover some bases here. You know, it is so striking in the birth narrative, Isaac and Jesus, point by point. But the truth is, when you get to this story as well, it's exactly the same thing in the offering of Isaac from Abraham. When God says to Abraham, go up to Mount Moriah, that's key for us. Abraham's probably still in the south. So he takes that three-day journey up to Mount Moriah. Now, Mount Moriah is well attested in the scriptures. It, It You can pick it out in Old Testament stories so that we know that this place that Abraham took Isaac to offer him became the the site that Ornan the Jebusite used when he was threshing his grain. And that also became the point where the angel of God stopped when he was slaughtering the people of Israel for David's sin. And that became the place where David offered sacrifice for the nation. And that became the place where Solomon built his temple. So both the first and the second temple were located right on this site. 
So that means all the animal sacrifices that God commanded of Israel from the time they initiated Solomon's temple forward, as long as there was a temple there, were occurring at the same place that Isaac had been offered by his father Abraham. Now, if you go to Jesus' death, Jesus was crucified outside, basically the northwest walls of the city of Jerusalem. Jesus was not crucified at this same spot, but Jesus was crucified adjacent to this spot just outside the city. You could see these places at the same time, the temple and Golgotha or the place of the skull. Apparently the top of the hill looked like the top of a skull and that's where the Romans did their execution. Jesus is crucified on not exactly the same site, but approximately the same site that Isaac was offered and the same site in which all the offerings from the temples had been made as well, same place. God told Abraham to take his son, his only son. You know, doesn't that sound like John 3.16? God so loved the world that he gave his one and only or his only begotten son. In fact, this is said twice in Genesis 22. Take your son, your only son, the son whom you love. And he says later, your son, your only son. This, in fact, was not Abraham's only biological son, was it? Because he'd had Ishmael. And later he'll have more children again. But as far as God was concerned, for God's program, Isaac was it. Your son, the only son. The, the son in whom all your dreams, all your hopes are bound up in. You take that son and you march him up the hill and sacrifice him. And that's exactly what God the Father does with his son, Jesus. His son, his uniquely begotten son, the Lord Jesus. You know, pictorially, if you see this in your mind's eye, uh, it says, the text says that Abraham loaded on Isaac the wood for the offering. You know, I might think if I carry the, the wood that I carry it like this in my arms, but, but the text is clear, Abraham loads it. So it was probably in some kind of sling over his back. So the picture in our mind would be that as Isaac's walking up Mount Moriah, he's doing so with this load of wood carried across his back. And that sounds familiar too, doesn't it? Uh, John's gospel is the only one that paints it this way. But if you go to John, and by the way, if you've got a study sheet, I think there's a typo. It should be John 19, 17, not verse 16. John's gospel says Jesus went out bearing his cross. It's the same thing. And by the way, when he leaves, he would have been closer, if you will, to Mount Moriah when he takes on that cross than when he was crucified. But it's about the same place. So you see Isaac marching up that hill with the wood of his own offering, he's carrying on his own back. That's exactly what you see with Jesus as well. The text says that Isaac is bound. There's a couple things on this. Isaac is, is bound. He's, he's secured to the wood that he would be consumed on in the flames on that altar. He's bound to the wood of the offering. And of course, when the texts say that Jesus was crucified, it uses a single word, but we understand what that means. He was secured to the wood on which he would be offered. Isaac was probably tied up. Jesus was nailed down, but the effect was the same. They were both connected, as it were. They couldn't get away from the wood on which they were being offered. You also see here that Isaac is a strapping young man. And Abraham's an old man. And if Isaac wanted to resist Abraham, he could have. So imagine this. All Abraham has said is God will provide the lamb. Now, if you're Isaac and you go up there with dad, 
you trust your dad, you know he loves you. Now, when dad turns around and starts tying your hands up, you know some lights might be going on for you, right? Uh, what? The text never says he tells him what's going on, right? Isaac, again, he's, in a sense, he's the passive element here. So he's tied up by Abraham. He is bound by dad to the wood of the offering. And Isaac doesn't resist. He could. He would be physically capable of resisting, but he doesn't. He trusts his father. So he allows himself to be bound. Doesn't oppose it. You know, something that we've pointed out another time. Uh, it's the father binding the son. It's the father tying up the son to offer him. Abraham and Isaac, but that's true too for Jesus, isn't it? You remember when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he prays three times, he says, Father, I'd really like it if you'd take this responsibility away from me. If you could just take that cup, have somebody else drink it, let's go about this another way, that'd be fine by me. But at the end he says, but not my will but yours be done. So we understand that just as Isaac was fulfilling the will of his father as he goes up that mountain to be offered, Jesus is fulfilling the will of his father as he goes up to be crucified. Could Jesus have resisted? Do you remember when the, the crowds come to arrest him in the garden? And Peter is going to make a, a go of it, isn't it? He draws his sword. They're far outnumbered. This thing's not going to work anyway. You look at it. And Peter hacks off the, the ear of the fellow who belongs to the high priest, right? Uh, but Jesus says, do you remember there? He says, Peter, put your sword away because if I wanted to resist, I would just call and I'd have legions of angels here. I don't need your sword, Pete. If I wanted to resist, I could. And I could do so with a, with a simple call. Isaac has no resisting. Jesus has absolutely no resisting. Isaac is silent, by the way. Isaac is silent. There's no report that he says anything when he's being offered. Right? So when you go to Isaiah 53, verse 7, what does it say about Jesus? Again, foretelling his crucifixion, it says, He's like a lamb being led to the slaughter, and like a lamb, he does not open his mouth. He doesn't even bleat. There's no complaint. There's no resisting physically, but also verbally. There's no stop, you know, don't do this. Isaac's silent, and so is Jesus. You see, point by point by point God wanted us to see Jesus was always in the works wasn't he the text in Genesis 22 says it was three days between the time that Abraham was told by God go offer your son for me the third day he gets to Mount Moriah and and this it would be like this Isaac is dead to Abraham for three days because Abraham knows I've got to go kill my son. For three days I know I'm putting my son to death. On the third day I get my son back alive. Does that sound familiar? So Jesus tells his disciples I'm going to be crucified in Jerusalem. I'm going to be buried for three days. And on the third day I'm going to rise from the dead. Isaac was dead as far as Abraham was concerned for three days. Uh, another prediction, another four shadowing of Jesus' death three days and then his resurrection. So, you got, you know, people who don't believe the Bible or think God's, I don't know, they don't need to reckon with him in their life. It's like, really? What we have here in the text are stories that are textually just crazily tight, tightly woven together. And 
Jesus, if we, you know, we say Jesus is at the turn of our calendar, 0.0. Well, Abraham's about 2,000 years B.C. And you know, it makes absolutely no difference to what God's doing. It's like it's, he's right on course. It's right on time. God said it. God displayed it here in the life of Isaac. And here he comes. And here it is in Jesus' life as well. Let me point out again by way of application, just thinking of the season and expectations. In both Abraham and Isaac, you have a display of men who trusted God more than they clung to their own hopes and dreams. And this is really key. You know that for Abraham, all he wanted in life was this boy. That's all he wanted. I just want a son. God says, I'm going to do all these things for you. I'm going to give you all this land. You're going to be rich and wealthy. And, and Abraham comes back. Do you remember? And he says, Lord, that's all fine and good. But you know what? I don't have an heir. Eliezer, my servant is my heir. You know, all this other stuff, it, it's pretty much meaningless. All he wanted was this son. So when God commands that Isaac be offered by Abraham, God is telling Abraham, you give me the thing in life you count most dear. You give me the thing that bar everything else It's the only thing that you want in life on this earth. And you give that thing to me. You slay it before me. That's pretty challenging. Do you know what? You think of Isaac too. Isaac, just say he's 25. He's never been married. He's the heir of all his father's wealth. Do you think he has a bright future in his own mind? I bet he does. Now in today's lingo, we'd say he figures he's going to Harvard. He's going to run father's business. He's a billionaire already. And life is made in the shade. Life's good. And my expectation is I'm going to get married. I'm going to have children. I'm going to have this life like my dad had. I come into all my father's wealth. Life is good. And it's going to get better. When he does not resist Abraham's binding him and putting him on that wood, Isaac is trusting his father and his father's God for all his future, all his hopes. You see where this goes? All his plans, all his expectations for the future. And this is really important. This sounds like a really cruel thing to do on one hand, doesn't it? God says to Abraham, take that son you waited forever to get. Now you got him and you're happy and life is good. Now you slay him for me. But you know, this was really, this was a mercy killing. This was a mercy killing because... Abraham is compelled to give God what otherwise would become an idol in his life. And Isaac gives up his hopes of future which could become an idol in his life. And they both receive back their life, but it's from God. And guys, this is the thing. And seriously, all of us will face these choices in life, I guarantee. It'll be sooner or it'll be later, but it will happen. You're going to come to a fork in the road in which God says, I want that thing that you're holding on to. I want that thing you count most dear. And I'm requiring that you give it back to me. And this is a mercy killing when God does this to us as well. The hopes, the aspirations, the dreams, the desires we have for ourselves, sometimes for others, for the future, if those things aren't given to God, they become idols inevitably. And we end up living for those, either to get them or to keep them. And inevitably you will find God tolerates no idols. And so those things that are inherently good in themselves, the good things in life God gives us, 
He wants to bless us. He wanted to bless Abraham. He did bless Abraham. But he wants to do so in such a way that we never forget, we never misunderstand, that God is ultimately the prize. God is ultimately the source of all joy. It's not the stuff or even the people he gives us. Those are not the source. Ultimately, it's God himself. And that's what you see in Abraham and Isaac's life. They both trusted God more than they were trying to cling to their own version of a good life. They were willing to lay that down to God. And in the Christmas season, again, I just think expectations tend to rise high, probably beyond what's uh, wise sometimes. Uh, Our hopes for what we're getting, or perhaps hopes for the next year. Uh, Lots of us have expectations and desires, none of which are inherently bad. But can we at any point in time say, God, I give you my desire for that thing, that person. Sometimes, Lord, I give you the hope that I avoid this kind of pain or that kind of rejection. But God, I give myself to you. I lay myself down in death and I'll receive back the life you choose to give me. Short of that, inevitably, we end up with idols in our life and God does not want that. The third point that I want to point out, which Isaac is so much like Jesus, is in Genesis 24. I'm not going to read the text, but I'll tell you about it. Genesis 24. uh, Isaac's 40 before he's going to get a bride. I mean, that seems strange. In today's culture, 40, uh, pretty old today too. Well, Isaac's 40. And he's not married yet. You know, it's like, what's wrong with this guy, right? Well, he's waiting on dad. So when he's 40, Abraham calls his chief servant. Now, in this narrative in Genesis 24, the servant is not named. Now, it might be Elimelech who's named earlier. We don't know. He's not named, and that's theologically significant in this part of the story. The servant is not named, but Abraham calls him in and says, hey, It's time to get a wife for my son Isaac, and I don't want him to marry one of the local girls. I've seen the Canaanite women. This is not a good fit for my son Isaac. So, servant, you vow to me, you promised me you're going to go back to where I came from, my father's territory, back there where uh, Bethuel and Laban live, the house of Nahor. You go back there, and you find a wife for my son Isaac, an appropriate fit for my son Isaac. And so the servant does. He takes a caravan. He goes back up the Fertile Crescent, north and then southeast. And he gets to the town of Nahor. And he tells God this. He says, Lord, I really, I want your help. You know, I've, I've made a commitment to my master Abraham and I need your help on getting the right woman. And so, Lord, this is the deal. I'm petitioning you. When the women of the city come out to the well I'm at here, I'll ask a woman Would you give me a drink of water? And if she says yes and let me water your camels, then I'll know she's the one. And so out of the city comes this lovely young woman. And the servant doesn't know who she is. Lovely young woman named Rebecca. And so he hasn't even stopped praying when she comes out. And so he goes up to her and says, "Uh, Miss, ma'am, would you mind? Could I have a drink of your water? And she says, well, sure. And let me water your camels as well. He's like, Yes, she's the one. And so he gives her gifts right there on the spot. He gives her gold bracelets. And he says, hey, by the way, you know, I need a place to stay in your father's house. Do you have a place? Oh, absolutely. 
So the servant comes back to the house and he tells the household, this is the story. I represent Abraham, your relative. And God has made him great. He's given him great wealth. He's an important man in the east and his son Isaac is his sole heir. He gets everything his father has. And this wealthy, desirable, strapping, good-looking young man is looking for a bride. And I think Rebecca's it. He tells the story again of his prayer to God and Rebecca's response. And Rebecca says, uh, I'm all in. She commits to a man she's never seen. She's only heard about him. By the servant. And you know, they want to hang out and say goodbye. You know, ten days to stick around and have their last goodbyes. And the servant says, you know, this is so pressing and so important that I just can't do that. So you're coming or you're not. And so they ask her and she says, I'm, I'm willing. And so with the servant she's just met, headed towards a bridegroom she's never seen, she's led by that servant back up the Fertile Crescent, back down south, until one day there's a young man, youngish, 40s probably, I don't know, to me 40 still sounds pretty young, <clears throat> sees that young man in the field and she says to the servant, who is that? Well, that's your man. That's Isaac. He's out meditating in the field at twilight. And this, this story is really simple. It's beautiful in its simplicity. So the marriage... By the way, young ladies, if you're thinking about getting married, this is a pretty good... I'm just thinking a pretty good template. So they just... That's him. And here you are. And they go into Sarah, Isaac's mother's tent. And they're hitched. They consummate their marriage and life is good. It's so simple. It's beautiful. It's cheap too, by the way. <clears throat> As a father with two upcoming weddings, I can say, I love that story. It's so practical. The applications are easy to see, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. Where was I? Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Okay. So, now this is one of the things I really love about this part of Isaac's story. When we read the account of the declaration of his impending birth. That's really cool, and I love that. That's history, and that's great. And then Jesus' fulfillment. And when we read uh, Isaac being offered, it's like, wow, yeah, point by point, just like his birth. Point by point, you see Jesus' crucifixion, his offering near Mount Moriah also. Point by point, it's like, yeah, it's right there. But you know what? That's history, and that's what happened 2,000 years ago, right? And 4,000 years ago. That's a long time ago. So it almost sounds like someone else's story. But you know what? This part, you know, if you're a Christian, this is your story. This is where you come in. This is where we come in. Now, Paul makes clear in Ephesians 3, minor digression here, he says that the church was a mystery in the Old Testament. And a mystery in the biblical language means God did not make this thing clear. The Old Testament saints, they did not know what God was up to related to the church this is why the the jewish church you know we look back and we say why didn't you guys get it they didn't get it because god didn't tell them so you read in ephesians 2 and paul says jesus has broken down the wall of division that divides jews and gentiles and he's made one new man now that's masculine language there but you get to ephesians 5 and masculine turns feminine because the church is a she not a he and what we see here 
is the proclamation of the gospel by the Holy Spirit of God today in the world to procure for Jesus a bride. That is Rebecca and Isaac's story through the Spirit, and that is your story and mine today. This is what's being lived today. I mean, this is historic because this goes back to Pentecost, but this isn't merely historic. This is your story. If you've heard the gospel and the Holy Spirit has convicted you of the truth and you've said yes to Jesus, you are the Rebecca to Isaac's. Am I saying this right? You are Rebecca to Isaac. To Jesus, you are the bride. You are his intended one. This is going on today. Abraham sends the servant. That's the Holy Spirit. By the way, you have all these uh, references on your study sheet. I won't go into all of these. Abraham sends the servant. That's the Holy Spirit. Unnamed in the text in Genesis. Unnamed today. All we know, it's the Holy Spirit sent by the Father. Jesus said that. The Father will send the promise that He said. Acts 1. You're going to get it. The Spirit will come. He'll come in My name. He'll represent the Father and the Son. That's what the Holy Spirit's in the world today doing. Isaac remains at home. We talked about passive. When it's time to get a bride, where is Isaac? He's walking the fields back home. Where is Jesus? He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. He's sitting with Dad at home, waiting for the Spirit to bring home his bride. Rebecca, verse 16, I I like this. Rebecca is lovely. The text is quite clear on this. Rebecca is physically lovely. Now, if you look at your life, or if I look at your life, or I look at my life, sometimes I say it's a little less than lovely. But when you go to Ephesians 5, it says that Jesus is doing something for us to make us like Rebecca. He's washing us with the water of his word. He's cleaning us up. And it says the end of that process will be that he will present to himself the church in all her glory, no spot, no wrinkle. This is cool. Whatever we think of our walk with the Lord today, areas of sin, things that we know about that others don't, thought life, things we we try and hide from others, God's not, nothing's hidden to Him, right? He's in the process of cleaning us up. And when we appear before Him, we will be like Rebecca. We will be perfect. This is exciting. I hope this excites you. Because when I see sin in my own life, it's like, really, still? It's still there. That can be discouraging, but no. Our future is glory, and you're going to be everything God meant you to be, nothing that He didn't intend you to be in that day when Jesus fully presents us as His bride to Himself in heaven by the work of the Spirit. Rebecca receives the servant in uh, chapter 24. Acts 2.38, Peter said the promise of the Spirit is for everyone. It's for your sons and your daughters. It's for your servants. As many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. As many are part of that bride, they're coming in and they receive the Spirit. Isaac is wealthy. You know the one we're connected to in the future? Everything his father owns is his. He's the heir of all things. And that means that when you become his fiancé, his intended, everything he has is yours. You know, Rebecca's willing to take off with the servant and marry a guy she's never seen. But it's tied in part to because she knows who he belongs to and what he has. He has everything to offer her. And the one we're connected to is the heir of all things. The the universe that the Father owns and has, Jesus is the heir. His bride shares that with him. Rebecca leaves her home and family. This is a big deal. 
Matthew 10.37 is the text for that. The offering of Isaac sounds very harsh and very cruel on one hand. And think of this too. In the story, they say to Rebecca, do you want to go with this guy? And she says, well, yeah, I do. But remember, when she says yes, she says goodbye to her family, her friends. She says goodbye to everyone and everything she knows. And you know what she knows? She'll never see them again. She'll never see them again. She's choosing Isaac over everyone and everything else. And she knows that. Let me stick around. Let me linger and savor this past life. And the Spirit says, nope. You're, you're moving on. We're moving on. This thing is over. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus said, if you love your mother or your father more than me, you're not worthy of me. That sounds cruel and harsh, doesn't it? I should love my mother. I should love my father. Jesus says, yes, but compared to our love for God himself, there should be no rivalry. Nothing else should be even close. This is something, too, uh, <clears throat> I'm joking as I look at my engaged daughter. Um, yeah. You know, we had a great time with our girls growing up. Had a great time. Um, would do it all over again or start a new family if uh, Kathy and I weren't like Abraham and Sarah past that point. But one of the things we wanted, wanted to do, we would not want to load our daughters with some sense of duty or responsibility to their parents in a way that didn't leave them free to go to the life God had called them to. You know, people ask us sometimes, so Jessica's been back with us for a while, which has been sweet, have one of the girls back. But, you know, at one point they were all gone, and three of them are gone, and they've been gone, it's longer than I realized, four years. And it seems like we rarely see them, maybe, maybe once or twice a year. Well, there's a, there's a certain pain to that, you know. You'd say, well, that's not what I would choose. But see, the thing is, at the end of the day, you say, what's God's call on their life? Where does God want them? And who does he want them with? Well, that's what you've got to say. Like Rebecca's family, we bless you. You know, when Rebecca is sent off, the family blesses her. And that's what we should do for each other. It's hard when friends leave or children leave, isn't it? We love those relationships, you know. But we'll head to a time when those relationships never end. When there are no more goodbyes. That's a future day. But here on the earth, we need to be willing to say to each other, we bless you in Jesus' name as you go out someplace else. As you leave us. Not what we would choose. But we recognize God's call on your life. And we do what Rebecca's family did. We bless you as you go out. May God bless you. Rebecca travels in the company of the servant. When we get to heaven, we'll have never seen Jesus. The rapture occurs, we'll see Him in the air, that'll be good. But short of that, we're traveling by the grace of the Holy Spirit today until we see Jesus face to face. And that's Revelation 19. And that's the consummation of all things for us. When the new Jerusalem, the heavenly bride of Christ, and you talk about the, the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's a future day for us. And until then, we travel with the servant until we see the bridegroom, until that day occurs. But you can see the same thing here, can't you? Point by point, that Isaac's life reflects Jesus. And Rebecca's life reflects your life and the life of the church if Jesus is your Savior. Because you've said, like Rebecca, yes to the appeal of the Spirit. I receive that message. I accept that offer. 
That's our story today, which I love. You know, at the end of the day, all comparisons and types and portraits of Jesus ultimately fall short. So Abraham goes up. He's ready to slay Isaac, isn't he? He's really ready to do it. But God says, stop. Don't sacrifice Isaac. Here's a substitute. You know, here's a ram caught in a thorny thicket. You know, for Jesus, Jesus was the substitute. There is no substitute for him. He's the one that's crucified on the cross for our sins. He's the one that goes to the grave. He's the one that rises from the dead. For Jesus, there's no substitute. Everything, everyone else, they fall short of that. That Christmas season, when we're thrilled about the incarnation, we've got to remember why the incarnation was a necessity. Because like Isaac marching up to the hill to be offered by his father Abraham, we needed a substitute. We have no hope. We have no future. We are without God and without hope apart from Jesus marching up that hill, the cross on his back, led by the Father, strapped to that wood of the offering to pay for your sins and mine. You know, the, the most tragic thing that occur could occur during the Christmas season would be if you hear all the stories and you don't know Christ yet and you say no to the best gift ever, that would be the tragedy of Christmas. Everything else is gravy. We know where we're going. We know who we belong to. We know what our future is. The only tragedy possible here is to reject Jesus. So if you don't know Christ this morning, I would just say to you again, don't put it off another day. I know God works sovereignly in his, his ways and his time. But if you hear God's spirit today, just like Abraham's servant telling you there's a better way. You know, you don't have to go on your own. And there's a better way and there's a better hope and there's a better future. Don't put that off. Accept that today. That Jesus, I accept your salvation for me. I accept your offering for my sins. And I want to be part of your bride, the church. You can do that today. If you have Christmas, you know, loaded with good things and, and lots of pitfalls too. I would just say, hold the gifts, the minor gifts that God gives us here. Hold them lightly. Expectations, you know, on the uncle or aunt that you're going to see this week that you'd really rather not. You know, or the one that you'd love to see this holiday week and that's not going to be there. Hold all that stuff lightly. You know, God, what do you have for me this Christmas? What are your gifts to me and what are the gifts you want me to give others? You know, grace, forgiveness, patience, kindness. Those are great gifts to give as we're getting together with each other this week. But the life of Isaac, this, uh, I love it. And I love the fact that this part of the story, this bringing in the bride, that's going on today. This isn't just history. This is the Spirit's work today. And when you share your testimony of Christ with others, and when you invite others to enter the blessing of Jesus in the gospel, you're part of what the Spirit's doing. God uses your voice, just like the spirits, to invite others in to join, to be connected to the heir of all things. That's exciting. Father, we just thank you this Christmas season that you've given us a gift beyond measure and beyond asking. Lord, most of us didn't even know we were lost until you pointed that out to us, much less that we needed a Savior. Father, thanks for anticipating our need for sovereignly from eternity past planning to send your son Jesus up the hill dying on a cross for our sins Lord to give us the gift of eternal life and Lord the gift of the Holy Spirit Lord beyond which no other gift really matters Father help us to treasure you to treasure your son the Lord Jesus this season and Lord help us to 
to uh, graciously, thoughtfully speak to others and offer others in the power of your spirit the gift of eternal life and the blessings of the family of God on each other as we get together. Lord, we love you. We honor you now in Jesus' name. Amen.